Daniel chapter 6 here, and we're moving from the head of gold, as Belshazzar saw the handwriting on the wall, near the menorah, and, and while they were using the other temple instruments, and now he is going to be put out of power. Darius the Mede has come in, and we learned last time we were together that he was very cunning in how he actually got into the city. But he did make his way into the city. As things turned out, God told Belshazzar that he was done. And as a matter of fact, Belshazzar died that very night. Let's move into chapter 6 where Darius comes in and sets up his government and his cabinet taking over Babylon as we move into the shoulders of silver in the Medo-Persian Empire, 536 B.C. If you'll turn to chapter 6 and verse 1, at the beginning, Darius, I say it's Darius, people say Darius, set up his cabinet of rulers in this newly formed kingdom of what was, what was the great Babylon. So read Daniel, uh, let's read Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom. So he's spreading out now throughout the whole of Babylon and making it clear there is a new uh, leader in town the new king in town, and all of his people. Verse 2, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now, first I want you to understand that Darius is not the name of this man. It's actually a title. The name of this first particular monarch was Dubaru. That was the name of him, but we call him by his title. Sort of like other titles in the Bible or the titles of other kings that you might call like the Herods, so forth and so on. Darius is a term for monarch, and his name was Dubaru in this moment. Now, when Darius came in, he didn't want to destroy the city, but simply establish a new reign, which is, of course, what we're told in the statue. There was a new reign, and the Babylonian kingdom was found wanting, and God took it away. It took it out of Belshazzar's hands, and that's exactly what happened. It's interesting to know that this Darius killed all of the former officials. This is what kings usually did. But he let Daniel live. The key here is that even though Darius of the Medes, or was of the Medes, he was setting up his kingdom on behalf of the Persians. So you have the Medo-Persian Empire, which sounds probably familiar to most of you. So Darius set up the kingdom on behalf of the Persians. Please go to Daniel chapter 6, verse 3. Now, Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Now, here we have again Daniel being specifically selected to have high position in a kingdom that's not even God's kingdom, has nothing to do with God directly, and in a position of rulership. You've heard this before in Daniel and characters before him like Joseph and so forth. It's interesting. Let's continue in Daniel chapter 6 and verse 4. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel. They were going to try to get him out because they were jealous and they didn't like this Jewish man, this Hebrew, in charge of all of this. Again, this is going to sound very familiar because there are repeating patterns that, will, that happen in the Bible. And I want to compare them with you so that we understand what God thinks about these things and how God uses these people for and against him and his plan and his people to effect his plans. Daniel chapter 6 verse 4 through 8. At this the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of his government affairs, trying to trip up charges against him. 
but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Now, isn't that interesting? He was neither found corrupt nor negligent. And I got to ask the question, how is it with you and me? Even if we weren't Christian, don't we admire that? Don't people admire that in others that they deal with, whether they're Christian or not? It is a big point of responsibility to be holy. Now, as Christians, we know that being holy, being set apart, being of a high standard, and we fall, we sin, and I get that, but living a life that targets that is important to God because it glorifies God, and it also allows him to better use us as we see him using Daniel and Joseph and others, even though they all made their mistakes. By the way, just as a side note, Daniel is, if not the only one, he is one of, and I'm going to say he's the only one because I personally don't know of any others in the scripture, the only character in the Bible that nothing, not one thing is written against him in a negative light. Now, there may be others, but I doubt it. The only one I know for sure is Daniel. So think about that and think of how that's serving God and actualizing his plans right now as he gets ready to release the people from the Babylonian captivity. Remember, we're moving now out of that phase. Seventy years are done. We're going to move into where the Medes and the Persian, or the Medes on behalf of the Persians, are now in charge here. And now we start moving forward to the time when you know that the Israelites are led to go back or allowed to go back under this character named Cyrus. And we'll talk about that later. So I have a question, rhetorical, of course, but what if you or I were in Daniel's position of power? What if you were up there? What if I had a better system to broadcast because I was up there in the media or I was the president or some high official? I wouldn't be doing this trying to stay online. <laughs> but the point is, is what if you or I were in, in Daniel's position of some sort? in a position of power, could those who seek to do you in find anything that would stick? Could they find ways about you which could assist them in trying to get rid of you? Interesting. So I wonder if Daniel didn't have any advanced copy of the New Testament with him. We're going to look at that, that he wasn't told about. Now, of course, I'm being facetious. He didn't know anything about the New Testament, but here's my point. I'm just going to read this if you just want to follow. Uh, Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. And here's the point. Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now, again, that's a tall order, and I fall short of it more than I don't, and I'm sure you do too. But that is the point. This is what we need to aim for. And again, this is New Testament stuff. Let me read to you Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 20. Timeless stuff. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish. But understand what the Lord's will is. Verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. We also know another place, another place in the New Testament it says, if there's anything good, anything of good report, think on these things. This is another way of putting that same exact concept. Verse 20, always, always giving thanks to God 
the Father for everything. And we know that the scriptures say in Romans that all things, not some things, maybe God's not sure, all things, even in Daniel's life, and all of them in the Old Testament and in the New Testament and in the church, throughout the whole church age, all things work for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now I'm going to read this from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world, this is us in the church, and this was the Jews in the old world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans. And by the way, you may remember, if you've read the scriptures about the Babylonian captivity, that even when God said that he was going to allow his people to be taken into captivity, that they were supposed to do exactly that. They weren't supposed to revolt. They weren't supposed to raise rebellions. They were supposed to live peaceable lives, grow, and in, in there have their families and do the things that they would normally do as if they were in Jerusalem and still also worship God. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. And the day he's going to visit is much sooner now than it was even when this was written. First Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of the foolish men, and I'll add, those who are trying to do you in, in whatever strata of life you are in. Now, of course, the major caveat here is, never do anything that the government or leaders say that is outside of God's will for you or me as a Christian. Verse 16 of First Peter chapter 2, live as free men, but... There's always that but. Do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect. That means employees. Submit yourself to your employer. You get paid for a good day's work. Do that good day's work. Not only to those who are good and considerate, but also your employer. And we've had some. Maybe you have some now. Maybe you work for an employer that really isn't a very good person or, or a good organization. But also to those who are harsh. Verse 19. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit? How is it to my credit? If you or I receive a beating for doing wrong and you endure it. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. As you go back to Daniel chapter 6, we're going to continue in verse 5. But I wanted you to see that Daniel pretty much knew all of this. This is nothing that was newly instituted and common sense would dictate that. This wasn't. Matter of fact, even if you look at the Old Testament and you study the Ten Commandments, the laws of Moses, you study what was done and what they meant and how the people were supposed to live, and we know that they certainly didn't live up to them. And by the way, when they got into the Promised Land, which the book of Deuteronomy really starts to chronicle, when Moses couldn't go in with them, but they were led under Joshua, 
they were given another set of laws in Deuteronomy by Moses before, just before they were entering the promised land. And this was not only in addition to the religious laws, the quote-unquote religious laws that they already had, but it was also now a set of civil laws. As they settled into a land that was their own, they had to have a set of governmental or civil laws, and these were given to them as people under God. And so God establishes government, whether it's his directly or it's indirectly through wherever you live. It's the United States here, of course, for us or wherever else, the federal government, the state government, the local government, and so forth, even your town, whatever it is, you have to do these things. And he knew them. It's only when we decide we don't want to know them that we are. And of course, all of us, including myself, do that. Anyway, interesting. I want to make that clear about Daniel because this is a very key fact and I wanted to show you that it's nothing new. It's nothing new. We're supposed to be exactly the same way. So we learn from these characters in Scripture, and we can compare the Old Testament and the New Testament, and God does not change. His Word does not change. And then we can learn better how we need to be and how He intends us to be and what pleases Him. So anyway, let's go back to Daniel chapter 6 and verse 5 through 9. Finally, these men said, Ah, we will never find any basis for charge against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with, ah, the law of his God. Isn't that interesting? They're now going to use, oh, wait a minute, the law of God against him. Isn't that how they tried to get rid of Jesus? Isn't that what the Pharisees did? Isn't that how they finally got him to the cross by not only, not only using the laws of God to trump up charges against Jesus, but then also to try to get him in defiance of also, or be convicted of defiance in the, of the laws of the Romans as they were lording it over, if you will, of Israel. Think of that. Doesn't change, right? We're going to see another instance of the same exact thing in the Old Testament. But let's move to Daniel chapter 6 and verse 6. So the administrators and the satraps went as a group. They all banded together to the king, Darius and said, O King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, the prefects, the satraps, they're probably sounding very official here. Advisors and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone, anyone, no exceptions, who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days except you, O King. I hope this is starting to sound familiar to you. Because this happened with Nebuchadnezzar. I'm going to show you another instance in a moment where this also happened in Scripture. It's the same thing. The same exact thing. To get rid of the Jews, how do you do it? Well, you have to trump up charges against them and their law. That's the only way you can do it. I want to discuss something with you in a few minutes, um, if we have time, about that in this modern day. And what to be worth to be leery of because it's coming. But I digress. Except you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, you know that story, but this is how it started with the lion's den. Verse 8 of chapter 6 of Daniel. Now, O king, now, O king, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered. Make it a law. Make it a law that cannot be changed. In accordance, listen to this, in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians. So they're going to put it on their books on how their laws work. Their government works, which cannot be repealed. So what did King Darius do? Like the others fell for it. Verse 9, so King Darius put the decree in writing. So here again, 
we have and yet another anti-Semitic approach to squelching the voice of God. They were going to squelch God's people to squelch the voice of God, which they don't want to hear. Do you see any of that happening today as we get to the close of this age? Jesus said, in this life, you will have trouble and we will have persecution. And it is guaranteed. It's been guaranteed ever since the church age started, right after the death of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. You look at the early church fathers, you look at the apostles themselves, even in the Bible, in the New Testament, they were persecuted, all of them. And they had to continually be put upon. This is nothing new. And this is how they will squelch God. This is Satan's tool is to get rid of his people. And then they can try to squelch God. But for them, it was an anti-Semitic approach. Today, it's not only them, although the tide's turning for the Jew right now, but I want to get into that if we have time. I don't think we're going to have time now. I don't want you to think of something in a minute. Let me, let me see if I'll, I'll make time for that. Let's continue along these lines of how this anti-Semitic approach of using the law, using the governments to get rid of God's people and making it unrepealable is, um, is the way it's done. You are probably, who's listening into this now, very familiar with the story of Esther in the book of Esther in the Bible, where King Xerxes had, quote unquote, put off Queen Vashti because of a matter of disrespect, the first queen, and the decree issued against her, which the king signed. Let's read about the situation here as a review and to harmonize all of this, the same thing that happens over and over again. I'm going to talk about today, probably. So in the book of Esther, you can go there if you like, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. It's before the book of Job and after the book of Nehemiah, the book of Esther. Esther chapter 2 and verse 1. Later, when the anger of King Xerxes toward Queen Vashti had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what, she had, what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, personal attendants, the group comes, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Now, you know, if you know the Bible and you know the story, you know where this is leading. So now they've got the king's ear. Again, as a group, they come to the king. They're going to try to get him to do something. Verse 3. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all the beautiful girls into the harem of the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. You see what's happening here. It's going to be a beauty pageant, and the winner gets to marry the king. Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he did it. He followed it. Verse 5 in Esther chapter 2. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai. And again, that name should be very familiar, very prominent in this book. The son of Jair, the son of Shemai the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah at the time. And if you've been in our studies before, you know this, or you've studied the Bible, you understand how all of that worked. Verse 7, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, who he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. The girl, who was known as Esther, was lovely in form and features, and Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So to summarize here, King Xerxes is taken by Esther's beauty, 
after she goes into this pageant, these girls are taken against their will. I mean, they maybe maybe they wanted to go because it's a being accepted into the beauty pageant. I don't know what the prize is going to be, but the queen, I guess. But whatever, they were taken. Whether they were specifically selected house to house, and they were taken, they were put into a special program. It's an indoctrination program. Anyway, Xerxes finds her, marries her, and she becomes Queen Esther. But the king did not know a very important fact about Esther at the time, that she was a Jew, because Mordecai ordered her not to reveal this, because, again, being a Jew in that secular or pagan kingdom could immediately make you lose your head. And so he was going to protect her like that. But the king did not know she was a Jew, because Mordecai ordered her not to reveal this. Then... There was an evil character called Haman. And if you've ever heard of Haman's hat during Purim, this is the character that you've heard of. Very evil man. Who, after some intrigue, was credited with thwarting a plan of two officers to assassinate the king. Now, he's credited with this plan. Mordecai, this Mordecai, actually found out about this and reported it to Queen Esther. This plot to kill the king. Haman, though, was given a seat of power because he usurped this and been credited with thwarting this plan. Now, as you might expect, Haman does not like Mordecai. But even more than that, he didn't like the Jews as a people. He wanted them eradicated, just like these other men who were around didn't want Daniel there and certainly didn't want the Jews in the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. In Isaiah 15, Saul, King Saul, was told to destroy certain people totally. I want to backtrack because I just missed a piece of my notes, but very important. This Haman, you know, we look at the scripture and we see a lot of... Uh, a lot about um, uh, heredity. And many years ago, when I was first becoming a Christian, I was understanding the Bible, and my worldview was changing about how things worked and the history of the world and why it was important to understand that, and of course, on the biblical worldview. Why was it so important? I mean, you look at some of these books in the Bible, and there are plenty of this guy bought this one, and she bought he bought this, and he bought And it was amazing. I just like, I couldn't understand why. But now, of course, I understand, and I hope you understand, too. But there is a thread, and I don't know if it's through the DNA or what. It must be a spiritual part. I don't know how it works. But there is a thread of attributes that goes from generation to generation to generation. And the spiritual world knows that. Satan knows that as well as God does. And the lineage is very important for various reasons to each of them. Haman was actually a descendant of an evil king Agag and the Amalekites who were, in their time, mortal enemies of the Jews. Now, why is that important? Because if, what I was just saying to you in chapter 15 of Isaiah, if Saul, King Saul, had obeyed God and not disobeyed and done just what he was told, no more and no less, and it turns out he did less than he was told, Haman would have never been born, and this might have been circumvented. But I digress. So in Isaiah 15, Saul was told to destroy these people, the Agagites and the Amalekites. But he dis disobeyed and spared the king. He spared King Agag and took the sheep and cattle as his spoil instead. Hence, the line continued and they were able to spawn generations later this man called Haman, who is now in the kingdom. So let's pick up the story in Esther chapter 3, verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, the Jews, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, now, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people. This is what was happening around Daniel at that time. Daniel was going to be first throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes to kill all of the Jews. Verse 8, Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people, a certain people, he's got the ear of the king now, 
just like these satraps and the administrators had the ear of Darius, and he listens to them. There is a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom whose customs are different from those of all the other people and who do not obey the king's laws. Ah, because they obey the laws of God. And it is not the king in the king's best interest to tolerate them. By the way, don't you see that happening today? Especially among true Christians, there's a big false Christianity all over the place. And those of us who are true Christians are being marginalized more and more. And they're saying to the heads of state, the heads of government, you know what? There's a lot of people around here who don't really do things and look at things the way you and I do. So, you know, they're infecting your kingdom and maybe threatening your rulership. Just saying. They don't obey the laws of the king. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. Verse 9. If it pleases the king, let us up a decree. Another decree to be issued to destroy them. And I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. So there's great reward for those who actually kill all the Jews. So the king took his signet ring from his finger. Just like the Darius, they listened to these guys. They're not as bright as you think they should be, I guess. And gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. The Agagite. If Saul did what he did, they wouldn't be an Agagite. But I digress. The enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman. And do with the people as you please. Whoa. And then it goes on, and it goes on to how they do it. Verse 15, spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. When Mordecai learned all of all that had been done, he tore his clothes. Mordecai is suffering now because he sees what's coming put on sackcloth and ashes, and went on to the city, wailing loudly and bitterly, but he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, because they were going to be exterminated. They fasted, and they wept, and they wailed. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So, we have seen this before, right? Even in Daniel. We just talked about other instances of it. Daniel chapter 3, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his three friends, were thrown into a furnace for not bowing down to Nebuchadnezzar's image. Haman's rabid anti-Semitism flows throughout all history, from when God took Abraham and made a people, eventually the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then the 12 tribes, all the way through now. You know what? Let me finish this about the, the, the uh, Purim idea, and then... I want to go into something real quick here, which I, I hadn't planned on doing, but it's happening right now. And I want you to be aware of it. So it's coming. I just wanted to be aware of it. So let's finish this up real quick, and I'll spend a few minutes talking about that. We talked about this, and there's a Jewish holiday because Haman was thwarted. And just as a, a spoiler alert, if you haven't read this in the scriptures, but Haman built a gallows to hang Mordecai on in his own property. You should read the book of Esther. It's a, it's a great book where God has such granular control over everything, even in people who hate him. He uses everything for his purpose. And so it, he turned events around where Haman was dishonorably dispatched on those gallows in his own backyard or his own front yard or his own property. You really should read the book of Esther. You, you've got to if you haven't done that. Anyway, to this day, the Jews celebrate the holiday of Purim. And uh, the hamantashen is a special pastry, which is shaped, as they say, as, as Haman's ears. And by the way, just as a side note, in synagogues throughout the world during Purim, when they read the book of Esther every time as a matter of rote, when someone says the name Haman in the scripture, 
everybody has noisemakers and the kids scream and everybody makes a big party of screaming to drown out that name of Haman. So that's what they do today as a matter of rope. Anyway, I'm going to stop here for now because we're running short on time. I, I want you to think about something that's happening. I, I don't know if you realize this, but in the end, where we are right now, you know that Israel has been reconstituted as a nation. And we know that ever since they reconstituted, there's a lot of intrigue in how it happened. And it wasn't all just God using good people to do this, right, to arrange it. There were some bad people called the Zionists and the Rothschilds and other people who are on Satan's side as rulers and elites of the world who also pushed for this for their own reasons. So God sort of, again, like with Haman, used these situations to get what he wanted to get done while Satan is on the other side trying to wrestle in this chess match where the rules of engagement are the same and both sides obey them. So God is using Satan's moves against him and Satan's trying to use God's moves against him and that's how it goes. They try to use each of their own people to affect their plan. So having said that, if you've never heard of them, well, let me backtrack because we've got a couple minutes here. Very important to, to realize now, if you haven't, ever since President Trump came in, you know that the fortune of the Jew in this world has been turning. Anti-Semitism is still here, but it's turning. It's turning very quickly. And if you don't realize that, you need to watch the news and you need to watch what's going on carefully. Because it's in this game of chess, there's these certain moves that are strategic and they sometimes make moves, Satan will make moves that don't seem to go against God so much, but they are. You know that Satan's job is to eradicate the Jews, but he's also got a very important job now since the church age began, and that's to eradicate the Christians. You have to get rid of us. And we are the only religion that will not merge with all of the others. And Judaism is also one of them too, but there's a form of Judaism called Kabbalah, which sort of is the basis of a lot of these false religions. And they're using this right now to run the nation of Israel, believe it or not, the Vatican and all these other false religions are tied into it. Where am I going with this? It's important to understand that Donald Trump is a catalyst. He's also a lightning rod. You know that one of the things he did was to move the Israeli embassy, the United States Israeli embassy, to Jerusalem. He's in favor of the Jews. His son-in-law is a Jew, and his, his daughter turned into a Jew. But they're really Kabbalists. I don't want to get into all that now. But what they're starting to really push now is for what is called the observance for the Gentile for what's called the Noahide Laws, N-O-A-H-I-D-E Laws. Now, you should look them up. Write it down. Look it up. Because you're going to start hearing a lot more about this. In a nutshell, what this is about is this, and be careful because it's coming. The Zionists, the ones that are driven by the wrong side of the house, are going to bring up the third temple, which is coming, as the temple for all nations, as God dwelling with the nations. And the only way that that's going to happen is by this peace plan that's coming. And I'm not saying that that's the peace plan in its current form. It's going to be the one that's going to bring in the Antichrist, but it's going to be the platform. And all of this is dragging with it, right? This, All of a sudden, Net, Prime Minister Netanyahu is visiting all of these different nations, even Islamic nations, and they're fawning to do business with Israel now. They're fawning over the Jew. Why? Because it's the time to raise the Jew up so that the peace plan will be done to set them up. It's also to set us up as Christians, too. Because what's going to start happening is you're going to get a form of what's called the Noahide Laws. And by the way, President Reagan was a fan of the Noahide Laws. He signed, um, he met with this, these people called Chabad, or Chabad. Um, you should look some of these terms up. I'm telling you, you really need to understand what's coming. 
Uh, President Clinton even wore a yarmulke at one time and met with these people. President Bush, George W., w signed into law. And I don't know exactly how it worked, but uh, the, the president, pres, president or the predecessor of Sunday as the Sabbath worship, the strict Sunday, which is what they want, but looking at the Noahide laws. And one of the major things about them, there are seven Noahide laws, look them up. One of the major things is, the top one is to not blaspheme God. And if the Gentile is able to keep these laws, they can actually inherit the earth with the Jews. That's what they say. But even the Gentiles who can't keep these laws, they might keep them around because, it's like, a, as it was put by one of the rabbis, a man will not kill his donkey because if he kills his donkey, then he loses money. So we're like donkeys to them. I'm very serious about this. But this is coming through the governments of the world. Part of the New World Order is bringing in the Noahide laws, raising the Zionist Israel to the fore, and bringing the Third Temple up as the place. And of course, it's going to make sense, because why would the Antichrist, when he comes, move into the Third Temple as God? Because it's all going to be set up. They're, they, they're going to believe he's God. They're going to believe he's Messiah. And the world is going to worship him. And part of that is making it clear that if you keep this Noahide laws and make him enforced around the world, it gets the world holy and ready for God to dwell with us, while they also allow, somehow, to build that Third Temple on that Temple Mount. I hope you see where all this is going. It's a trap. And it's coming. So look these things up. Anyway, I think we'll stop now. We're going to continue in chapter 6 next time. I hope you found it informative. Because that's really what we want to get out of these studies. is not just to go over the scriptures. It's important to really understand the mechanics of scripture. And you know, if you've studied with us for a while now, this is what we do. We take the sources of secular and biblical history, the sciences, and um, current events. And we tie them together. And a lot of people try to do that, and especially now as we move toward the end of the age, a lot of people, even non-Christians and non-Jews and people who don't even really know the Bible, know there's another shoe that's ready to drop. But we need to understand and make us better informed, to be ready for what's coming, to know what to pray for, know how to pray, and know how God works, his heart, mind, and character, and his point of view. So I hope that helps. Um, we are technically out of time almost. Anyway, I'm looking forward to Purim this year. I'm going to buy some Hamantash. <laughs> just because I can, and I know the story, and now you know the story too. But read the book of Esther. I really highly suggest that. And compare it to chapter 6 especially of Daniel. Read them on your own time if you're interested, and, and uh, just see where these coordinated points are, who Daniel was and who we need to be, and how Daniel knew what he needed to be. It's nothing but goodness for all of us who are, call ourselves by the name of God. So I think I am going to sign off. I think that's going to do it. I am going to say farewell. By the way, you can email. Please look up those podcasts for the studies in Genesis all the way through. I keep on going as long as the Lord will let me do it. So anyway, love you all. Thank you so much and enjoy. I will talk to you again 